Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technology is the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalai. Good evening to you all. Delighted to be here. Another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicking off this hour. The first episode of 2018 and, in fact, the first episode at our brand new live time. So if you missed the show and you wondered why it didn't happen yesterday and you're hearing it on the rerun, you say, where'd those Ask Noah show? Where, where did Ask Noah go? Where'd Noah go? I could always count on him to be someplace at a specific time on a specific day. He's a hard guy to track down. That's the time I knew I could find him. Where is he down? Well, we move to Tuesdays. So the Ask Noah show is Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Central. And uh, we're going to do something really cool. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, okay, there we go. <clears throat> we're going to do something really cool this hour. What we're going to do is to celebrate uh, us changing times and days. Since we are following the Linux Unplugged program, we're going to bring in the Mumble Room this hour. So if you're interested in being part of the show, and you can't usually connect because uh, you don't have long distance or you didn't want to install Skype or something along those lines. You can join us in our community mumble room. It's mumble dot uh, uh, mumble dot dot org. And uh, I think we got one guy in there. So I'll just say hi to him. Hey, is it uh, is it Jez? Yeah, that's me. Hey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thanks a lot for for being a part of the uh, of the show on our inaugural mumble. This is this is the good mumble room because this isn't the kind where um, there we have to uh, we tied it together with the phones. Like this is legit mumble is right on the air. So anyway, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. If you guys want to uh, speak up in the mumble room, I just uh, if I see you jump in there, <clears throat> I'll put you on. Otherwise, just ping me inside of the chat. Again, the chat, irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting. So, guys, uh, as I go on the air tonight, I want to report to you a big revelation I had, and that is that Bitcoin is dead. Bitcoin is dead. Now, what do I mean by that? Because there's somebody out there and they're like, no, I've been watching Bitcoin all week. It's the highest that it's been record. record, It was a record year for Bitcoin. What are you talking about? Bitcoin is dead. Well, for day to day use, for day to day operations, Bitcoin is now useless. And you can thank uh, a couple of people for that. Um, mostly the people that have been running up the system. And so we're going to talk about this as we go on through the show tonight. How how did we get to this point where it's now $20 to move money? If you have less than $20 in Bitcoin, your money's lost. You can't do anything with it. It's locked in. It costs you more money to get the money back out than it would be to, to actually do anything with the money. And you can't even buy anything with your $20 in Bitcoin because it costs too much to actually spend the money. So it's locked inside of Bitcoin. You're, you're hosed. That was never what Bitcoin was designed to be. But then again, Bitcoin wasn't designed to scale. All that. We're going to talk about all that and more coming up this hour at the Ask Noah Show. But as always, we give priority to our callers. If you want to give us a call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. You can email the show live at AskNoahShow.com. George from New York called us. Hey, George. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Hey, th- welcome. Thanks uh, thanks for making the time to join us at our new time. You're the first caller on Tuesday night. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. That's kind of uh, interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, you just kind of stumbled into it, huh? Yep, pretty much. Well, there you go. How can I help? All right. Um, my New Year's resolution was to finally stop uh, listening about it and be about it. So I uh, dual-booted. Uh, Ubuntu 17.10, I believe. Yeah, man, congratulations. On my, yeah, thanks. On my Dell XPS 13. Okay, so let's start out by saying you probably shouldn't have installed 17.10 <laughs> because... Yeah, yeah, I'm noticing now. Okay, yeah, okay. So, yeah, uh, well, so, so anyway, so we've got that. But let's just move past that for a second because the reality is that that affected Acer machines and Lenovo machines 
and uh, you have neither, and so you're you're probably okay. And the other nice thing is that you are sitting where the puck is going to be because everyone with I mean the LTS, the next LTS for Ubuntu comes out in we're counting down the last three months. And it's going to be sitting on GNOME. So you're sitting in a, in a bright spot. Uh, so your question was about dual booting? Uh, it's related to the uh, the woes of uh, installing. Um, I have everything kind of nice, I believe. Uh, my main problem is I couldn't get the my uh, Bluetooth headphones to connect and stay connected without losing sync. If that makes sense. Okay. Audio sync? Like, is in, like, the, the mouth moves, but the sound trails behind or something? Well, like, uh, like I say I'm watching Netflix, and um, all of a sudden, the mouth is moving, and I'm getting the audio late. And yeah. I notice that it happens. I'll disconnect, reconnect. It'll be fine for, like, four seconds, and then lag. LG headset, right? Uh, yeah, the Sony. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I had the exact same issue. George, 100% the same issue. I, I, mine is with the LG uh, earbuds. I have my, have my attached to my phone all the time, and I, I've had the same issue. Uh, there was an application that I installed. Let me see if I can find it real quick. It was a um, – I, I had to pair it a slightly different way. Uh, CLI client Ubuntu. Let's see if I can find it here on the air. This is, this is live Googling. Uh, it is uh, – Love it. Blues uh, B L U E Z dash simple dash agent, and uh, that's uh, it worked on my LG headset. But basically, I use the the this. It's a command line agent. Basically, it, it's it's a little bit geeky, and so I feel bad if you're you said you're a newbie. So this is like not what you're supposed to tell newbies that they have to do to get their stuff to work in Linux. So I feel bad, but uh, but basically, what you do is you run two terminal windows. And I'll, I'll put links to all this in the show notes so you can, you can follow through. But just for anyone listening, basically you run two terminal windows and you run this agent in one and it listens for the MAC address of, of the, of any Bluetooth devices in the area. And then once you find your Bluetooth device, you'll see like Sony headset and then it'll have that MAC address. You copy and paste that MAC address into the second terminal window and then it pairs with it. And at least for me, that solved my the 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 audio sync drifting issue. Uh, and and again, I'll have links. I'll have a step by step tutorial on exactly how to do that because, like I said, that's really not the answer you want to give uh, newbies. But that's the answer you get today. <laughs> so how's that? Yeah, like I'll check the notes definitely. But my other question was real quick was also regarding the uh, newbie woes. Is um, I believe when I first installed it, I could like when you close the lid. It, it it went to sleep. I'm noticing now it's not doing that anymore. Ah, yes. I have an answer for that, too. Um, that one I'm not going to be able to Google, though. Yeah, so... Uh, does it, so when it, it doesn't even lock, right? You shut the lid, and it doesn't... Not only does it not go to spend, it doesn't even lock. It just pretends like nothing happened. Right. Well, that, that happened one time, and then it locked up, and I didn't... I just had to hard boot again. Um, no, but sometimes, like, I'll close the lid. I know before when I, I used to kind of, like, crack it open and peek, and I would see that the power light would go out. And I'm like, oh, sweet, it's sleep. Mm -hmm. And I'm noticing now it doesn't do that anymore. It kind of does that fake, oh, oh, I think it's sleep, but then, like, it'll just, the screen is just black and it locked. Yep. I've had that, I, I've, again, I've had the same issue, and there is a fix for that, and that one's much easier than the uh, Bluetooth one. It doesn't, it just, you just add a, uh, it's just a configuration tweak. Uh, that you make. In fact, and you can you can double check me on this. My my guess is, if you restart the computer, so you start from a fresh boot, the very first time you close the lid, it will go to sleep, and then every time after that, it doesn't sleep. You might have to right. try it to see if I'm right, but the, but I, my, I'll bet you I, dollars to donuts, I'll bet you that happens. Uh, and and yes, there is a fix for that, and uh, I have done it. I've never had that issue on my ThinkPad, but I had that issue on the last laptop I had. And uh, I will post a, a, a I'm make a note because otherwise I'll forget. See, this is the problem. I, I always tell people I say I'll put a link in the show notes, and then guess what? I forget to put a link in the show notes. So let's see, we're gonna do the blues agent and then the closing lid. So I'll have uh, I'll have links to both of those uh, write ups to both of those in the show notes uh, so you just head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com click on the ask noah show and there should be notes there for you awesome thank you very much yeah thanks for calling it and george as you go through your uh, your linux transition if you run into the problems you give me a call back i'm here every tuesday and i'd be happy to help you again phone lines 1-855-450-6624 the email live at ask noah show.com give me a call make your voice heard become a part of the program so 
uh, Bitcoin has become useless for day-to-day transactions. And what I mean by that is when, when I first got into Bitcoin, I remember I flew to San Francisco and I went into a donut shop and I bought a donut with uh, some Bitcoin. And to me, that was a very exciting time because, it, you know, up until then, we had talked about Bitcoin. At the time, my favorite show on every any podcast network ever, the best podcast ever exists, Plan B, hashtag bring back Plan B. Uh, I, 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 we were listening to it on a theoretical level. So this was an idea like here's the currency. This thing actually exists. Nobody's really supporting it. You can't really buy anything with it right now. But this thing exists. And then in the middle of that, of getting so excited of this currency exists, now I could go into a store, a real live brick and mortar store, hold my phone up and pay for something in Bitcoin. And I, I, I will remember that day and treasure that day for the rest of my life because it was the first time in my entire adult life that I had ever conceptually understood an open source technology and within a reasonable time period watched it come completely to fruition where it did everything it promised it was going to do and then some and 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 then now just you know a couple of years later I have to report that uh it's gone the other direction but that moment where I where I started out just a couple six months earlier than that and learned about this this currency that existed and realized the potential and that it was open standards and all of that, everything we loved about open source, but now in money, decentralized. And I was able to walk into a donut store and buy a donut with it. And, you know, just holding your phone up. I mean, that was really, that was the precursor to Apple Pay and Android Pay, right? Is the ability to pay with your phone. And I remember thinking, man, if all I could have all my Bitcoin wallets, one for AltaSpeed, one for my personal, one that my wife and I share, I could have all of these things inside of my, my crypto wallet, and I could just hold up and, and spend money out of any of these accounts. This is the future. And then I could go online and, and send it, you know, email, you know, a, a string, and I could buy things. That was Bitcoin to me, and that was the exciting time of Bitcoin. And, at, and so at the beginning of 2016, if you had looked, the entire cryptocurrency, which is still worth billions of dollars, Bitcoin represented 90 plus so 90% of all the money in, in cryptocurrency combined was represented in Bitcoin. And then the all the other competing currencies were split up at, the ten, at with that remaining 10%. And it's actually less because it was, it was 90 plus percent, really. Does anyone want to guess today as we go on the air? Does anyone want to take a guess at what that cryptocurrency is? Anyone want to guess where how much of the entire cryptocurrency world does Bitcoin represent in percentage-wise of dollars? All the dollars that represent cryptocurrency, how much is Bitcoin? Anyone want to guess? Well, if you guessed 38%, you're right. 38%, just 38%. And this is, I think, the second time we've that Bitcoin has hit an all-due low. And the remaining 62%, hopefully I did the math right, is comprised of competing currencies. And part of that is just that Bitcoin doesn't scale. And, it, and it's by design that Bitcoin doesn't scale. The designers didn't want Bitcoin to scale. And they, they continue to make decisions to not let Bitcoin scale. We're going to talk about that, too. But it, really, the issue comes down to decentralization. Right now, the block size is limited to one megabyte. And it, it would be trivial to just go in and tweak something in the source code to make that block size two megabytes, which would effectively double the capacity processing capacity of the network. But the problem is that it, for, well, there's two problems. One is that's a hard fork because you, it's no longer backwards compatible with the old system. So you now have two competing uh, cryptocurrencies. So it's a hard fork, which is, and that, that's where the whole discussion of the segregated witness comes in and, and segwit and that, but if they were to make that change, if if we just all agreed that this is the direction Bitcoin is going to go because it doesn't scale, and so we need to go to a two megabyte block size, and nobody continued on with that one megabyte block size, then we would be able to uh, we would be able to to make Bitcoin scale, and we choose not to do that. And the, I mean, part of the problem is that you need more bandwidth to process transactions, you need more hard drive space to process the you know the because of the larger block size, so it will undoubtedly result in less nodes on the network. But my argument is one megabyte to two megabytes just doesn't make a difference. Even four megabytes or 10 megabytes, it's just not going to matter. Uh, what's a, what's a, what's a, uh, I mean, I just saw, what is a Seagate released a, uh, like a 14 terabyte drive? I mean, it's just, the space is cheap. And right now we have an unusable currency. 
the fee for Bitcoin is $20. So if you want to go buy a $5 cup of coffee, it's going to cost you $25 in fees to buy a $5 cup of coffee. And I have said from day one, even if Bitcoin doesn't succeed, cryptocurrency in general has succeeded. And I still believe that. I would just like to see changes made to the original, the pure, the Bitcoin, to bring Bitcoin back to the market dominance that it once had and let it reach its full potential. Because with all of this spurious activity, it has made the currency unusable. It can re- I mean, you can use it for big things. You can use it for investing if you're into that. I don't think you should be. Um, and But really, the more nimble, newer competitors have taken over what Bitcoin used to be. We're going to talk about that as the show goes on. But Nathan is calling. Hey, Nathan, from Michigan. Hey, Nathan. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How are you? Excellent. How can we help? So I have a, uh, a, a Dell Latitude 10 ST2E tablet. Okay. And uh, I've been kind of banging my head against the wall here. I'm trying to get 32-bit. Uh, EFI support. Yes. Uh, and I'm like remastering an ISO to have 32 bit. Right. You want the EFI distro support. to be 64 bit, but you want the bootloader to be 32 bit. Well, no, actually, it's a 32 bit uh, Atom processor. It's a Z7200. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what, what I'd like to do is, I, I, I mentioned I'm probably going to do OpenSUSE Tumbleweed since that they still support 32 bit and it's a rolling release. I don't have to worry about reinstalling. And it's really stable, so I'd uh, I'd like to remaster one of those. Nobody has a really good guide for making a bootable ISO image after you mm-hmm. tear it apart and put it back together, basically. So um, I just need to add the EUFI or the EFI directory boot directory, and that should work. And I have to modify Grub a little bit, but I can't find a good tutorial for mastering an ISO. Yeah. I suppose I, should, I could use like the Kiwi thing with OpenSUSE, but sometimes I think I'm kind of an, an idiot. So, no, you're not an idiot. I, I, no, you're not an idiot. I, they, so I dealt with this back when the Surface 4, I think, or maybe it was even the Surface 3 came out. Basically, the bootloader was UEFI and had to be a 32-bit UEFI bootloader. And uh, you couldn't install Linux on the Surface if you weren't using the 32-bit bootloader. And I got a friend, and I said, I'm like, how hard can this be? And so, like, we tried to create the partition and <clears throat> move the 32-bit files over and stuff. Man, it was a nightmare. And I remember thinking, I was like, this should not be that hard, number one. Number two, somebody should offer a distro with a 32-bit bootlo- UEFI bootloader. And I still believe that, by the way. Uh, so, Nathan, what I can do is – because the, the honest answer is I have no idea off the top of my head how we did that. However, I – I'm pretty good about documenting stuff. There, It's not always thought out documentation, but I'm usually good at pr- jotting things down so I don't have to solve problems twice, mostly because I'm lazy. Nathan is really what it amounts to. But I'll go back and look, and if I if I have documentation on that, I'll release that in the show notes. Otherwise, I can, I can poke around to some people and see if I can get you an answer. That'd be awesome. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer. And, that, you know, I could do a whole show on simple oh, – oh, what what should be simple problems to solve that are fundamental showstoppers for people wanting to switch to Linux. And that would be close to the top of the list. Because once you know how to do it, it didn't take a lot of time. It, just, it was a matter of copying files and editing some files, if I remember right. It wasn't time-consuming to do. Like Nathan said, there's no guide on how to do it. I'll give you another example, just because we're on the topic. I had one of, the, one of my friends reach out to me and he said, hey, are you still using YubiKeys? I said, yeah, for everything, man. If you're not familiar with what the YubiKey is, the YubiKey is a small USB device, and basically it is a write-only device. So you can only write to the device. You can never read from it. And why that's advantageous is because it never releases the – it never gives up the private key. So you have a key pair, a public key and a private key. Private key is stored on the key. Public key is you know, public. <clears throat> and you take the, that public key, and you can put it on any server that you want to. And then you can plug your YubiKey into your computer and you make a one-line configuration tweak to the SSH client. And now when you go to SSH into a server, your SSH client, instead of looking for a key file that sits on your computer or prompting for a password, it references the YubiKey token that's plugged into your computer and uses that private key to decrypt and, and facilitate a connection, broker a connection into the server. 
So why is that advantageous? Well, for a couple of reasons. First is because the regular key structure uh, is the, 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 the problem really comes down to a discussion between asymmetrical and symmetrical encryption. But suffice to say, for the purposes of this discussion, because I'm going to get lost in the weeds here, if I have a key file on my laptop and I copy that key file off of my laptop, there's no way for me to know that that key file has been copied. So basically what you do is every time you put a new machine up or every, you never copy the key file, you only leave it on one machine and you regenerate that key every so often to make sure it's secure. Well, with YubiKey, you don't have to worry about that because like I said, it never gives up the private key. So it's always secure. Now where that's advantageous for us at UltraSpeed Technologies is I give YubiKeys to all of our employees. And if we ever terminate an employee, I just ask them for the YubiKey back. If they give us the YubiKey back, which most of the time they do, we had one guy that, that didn't, but m most of the time they do. And if they give it back, uh, I know that there's no way that they could have duplicated it because there was no way for them to get the private key off of the device. So we know that that is secure and we can give that YubiKey to the next guy. And now we don't have to go around to all our clients and say, we need you to remove this guy's key and put this new guy's key back in. We just hand the key, the physical key to the next guy. And if they are gone, then we just delete the key out of the server and it, it's fine. The other nice thing is when we transition machines, like for me personally, I used to have to regenerate my SSH keys and then put the public key on all of the servers. Now, we have access to probably a couple thousand servers. That's a, that's a real pain in the neck. And when it comes to some of these contract places, you can't even just put your key in. You got to fill out paperwork and you got to drive out and show identification and get fingerprinted. And, you know, it's just it's a mess. With the YubiKey, I only put that key in there once, and if I get a new machine, I've got a little one that just occupies just a little bit bigger than my USB port, and it just occupies that uh, that that place in the USB port. Now, why, why am I talking about it? Why am I getting lost in the weeds with this? Well, because that's another example of an insanely useful piece of technology that's essential, like indispensable to anyone that manages Linux servers, and yet you cannot find a guide on how to set this up, and it's not that difficult. And we have one, and I'll put that. I'll just I'll add it to the. Uh, to the Ask Noah show, show notes here, too. We have one. There's also a video guide if you want to search for it uh, that I put together. It's the it, to, to this day, and we, I did that guide like a, a year ago, two years ago. It's still the only guide on how to get a YubiKey set up uh, using SSH on Linux. So it's, it's, it's kind of a pain. Uh, thanks for the call, Nathan. 1-855-450-6624. 1-855-450-6624. Sorry, one eight five five four five zero. Noah, uh, give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Architect in the chat room is saying there's no need to remaster the ISO, provided he's booting from a flash media like USB. A raw file system image will work, provided system D doesn't break during boot. It, it, that's true, and I I didn't remaster the ISO either. But once we once you wrote the if I remember right, and again it's been a couple of years since I've done this, but we wrote the ISO to USB drive, and then we had to go and make some changes. Inside of, uh, do, 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 oh, wait a second. Uh, yeah. Uh, ha, 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 Yeah, I, I think you have to make some changes inside of the USB drive, if I'm not, not mistaken. I'll go back and look at the notes. I'll dig it up. I, I, I just, I don't have access to any of that information here, so it's, it's difficult for me to talk about it on the air. Um... Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, let's. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, yeah. One eight five five four five zero six six two four. Like I said, this week we are in Mumble. So mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. If you'd like to join that conversation, if you'd like to join the conversation that way, you're welcome to do so. Uh, and if you know what, I'll tell you what. Just because uh, I can't, I can't. I was gonna try and offer something crazy, but I can't. Uh, so anyway, Bitcoin has become unusable, and that is really depressing to me. So what I have started to do is look at what has replaced it. And there's a lot of alternative cryptocurrencies to Bitcoin, commonly referred to as altcoins. And uh, I just want to uh, go over a couple of them, the ones I like, the ones I don't like. I'll start with one I hate. It uh, is IOTA. And uh, the thing that makes me hate IOTA is that they're involved with Microsoft. So right off the bat, go ahead, call me bias. Right off the bat, I want no interest in with anything to do with IOTA just because of that. But, you know, they've done some neat things. They worked with Volkswagen to develop a technology based on IOTA that provides an audit trail for car charging. But the reason that I bring IOTA up and the, the, the thing that I think we could all learn from with IOTA is that they have intentionally designed their system to become or their, their cryptocurrency to become more efficient as more people uh 
as more people join the network. So, for example, uh, with IOTA, they require anyone that submits a transaction to the network, you must solve, you have to first solve two existing transactions. And so the larger the network becomes, the more efficient the network becomes. Um, but but again, I mean, the, you know, they're in bed with Microsoft, they're in bed with Fujitsu, they've got, you know, a couple other companies. And, and here's the other thing, too. And uh, so let's, I guess, let's go through this. So the second uh, alt currency would be something like Ripple. And uh, Ripple caught my attention because it was the first altcoin to reach $100 billion of market dominance. So it's a huge alt currency. Here's the problem. It's pre-mined. It's pre-mined, and it is primarily run by large banking institutions. So the fact that it reaches $100 million doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. Uh, the Ripple's claim to fame, as it were, is that they uh, – what the heck is going on here? Uh, is that they act as a bridge to other currencies. So it doesn't discriminate between fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies. And that makes it really easy from for one currency to be exchanged with another currency. But again, because it's pre-mined, where does the money go? So with the Bitcoin, the original let's say you have a coin. The first coin comes into the market because somebody mines it. So they solve a math problem, they submit proof of concept, and they're awarded a coin. Now they can take that coin and go onto an exchange and say, I would like to sell my coin for a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or a million dollars or whatever. And then that's what establishes the Federal Reserve dollar amount for a Bitcoin. But it had nothing to do with the Bitcoin coming into existence. Do you guys follow me? So with IOTA being pre-mined, a company like Microsoft has all of the coins. They have all 50,000 coins or whatever, and then they just put them on the exchange and start selling them to people. So to me, that's not much different than the old Linden dollars. The whole idea of cryptocurrency is that it's not controlled or backed or whatever by any major company. It's just used by the community. And so it's a problem I have with Ripple. It's a problem I have with um, Microsoft. I, I don't like, uh, sorry, um, uh, IOTA. I don't like pre-mined I don't like pre-mined currency. And I'd like to know where that money goes because I've been told by the people that support IOTA and Ripple that the money doesn't go to the organization, the nonprofit organization or whatever that came up with Ripple or IOTA. But I don't understand how that's possible. And so if somebody can explain it to me, I'd love to hear it. In fact, I'd love to have you on the show and explain it to me. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't, if there's no CPU cost involved and you're just paying to buy it and they're all pre-mined, I, I don't really understand that. Um, but, but again, th there are little things that each one of these currencies are doing that makes a lot of sense in, in mostly the ability to scale. Um, and yeah, as XMN points out in the chat room, the lesson is that all cryptocurrencies have issue. Uh, that's true. There are, there are positives and negatives to all currencies and all altcoins. Um, but there are some really good ones, and I want to talk about those. Uh, the, 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 the newest generation, I guess you could call it, of coins is privacy coins. So one of the issues with a public ledger, one of the original issues with Bitcoin, and we saw this with the Silk Road, is Bitcoin was you know anonymous. You couldn't track uh, Bitcoin. It's just numbers, just numbers and letters. And yeah, we're going to get to Dash. Yes, I will, I will get to Dash in a second. There's somebody in the chat room talking about it. <clears throat> so... Uh, um, we have all these numbers and letters that represent represent a coin or an account, and then we have these numbers and letters, cryptographical signatures that represent a coin. And so the thought originally was, well, it's anonymous, and that's true. There is no name in the public ledger. You can't look and say that's John's Bitcoin, right? But if John, let's say let's say I buy a Bitcoin or ten Bitcoins from uh, Coinbase. And I have them deposited in my account. Well, because my bank account is associated with Coinbase, the a lawyer could go get a subpoena and say, where did you send these 10 Bitcoins to? And they'd say, well, we sent it to this one account. Well, where did the Bitcoins go from there? Because now, now that we have one tracking point, we have a single data point that tells us that Noah had these 10 Bitcoins and here they were. Now I can start following. Well, Noah, we know it's Noah because we know this account was associated with him, sent one coin here, one coin there, three coins here, four coins here, five coins here. Well, where, you know, who do those accounts belong to? Oh, those accounts belong to somebody associated with the Silk Road? Okay, Noah must have bought something illegal on the Silk Road. Uh, what did, was that seller selling? Oh, he was selling these things? Okay, Noah bought those things. And you can follow that through. 
So in light of that, what we have is this new generation of cryptocurrency called privacy coins. And the idea behind privacy coins is basically that they use things like the Tor network to obscure the traffic. And uh, so that provides for, as as best we know today, an extremely uh, privacy-conscious cryptocurrency. Um. So uh, so th- there's a couple of them that I want to talk about. So <clears throat> the first is, and I don't really like it, is Vergecoin. And uh, Verge is, is, a, is a privacy cryptocurrency. The problem I have with it is that it doesn't have a lot of market relevance. It's just worth money, and it's easy to mine. So people are mining it and making money, and then selling it for other currencies and making money off of it. That's fine if you want to do that. I don't have a problem. I'm not mad at you. But it doesn't seem like that has, uh, you know, great longevity I don't think Verge has, has great longevity. Uh, Pivx, Zcash, um, kind of the same thing. They they're they're privacy based coins. None of them really have a lot of market domination. Uh, I haven't seen anyone that's a, you know that anything that indicates to me that that's going to be the future of cryptocurrency. But then we get to and the chat room has already alluded to this Monero and Dash, and both of these are wildly interesting for different reasons. So the one I probably like best is Monero. And the reason I like Monero the best is because of two things. One is it's very easy to mine. It's very profitable to mine, even above and over the cost of electricity. But it also has some spending value. Like you can actually use it for things. I was uh, poking around on some of the Darknet sites, and a lot of them, almost all of them, are accepting Monero as cryptocurrency and some of the other ones too i i shouldn't i shouldn't say like you know it's not like if you have verge coin you can't go on the uh on any of the dark nets and, and and buy stuff there um but by far one of the most popular ones is monero so it's easy to mine it's profitable to mine and you can spend it in places which makes it really appealing to me but then probably one of my favorite cryptocurrencies privacy cryptocurrencies to come out lately is dash and why dash is interesting is because there are legit uh, brick and mortar stores that are accepting Dash. And if you're not familiar with Dash, if that doesn't sound familiar, they previously were called Darkcoin. But for day to day transactions, Dash is, is amazing. And the other thing that's really cool, they have a budget for marketing and advertising. So they're actually going out to places and selling the advantages of cryptocurrency and then making it easy for human beings to get into and use. And we saw this as an issue with Bitcoin originally because you had Bitcoin that was really cool and interesting and, and useful. But then the problem became in order to actually do anything useful with it, you had to rely on some third party service. So everyone went to something like Coinbase where I could just sign up for an account, enter my bank details and buy some Bitcoin. And then Coinbase became further useful because they had a mobile wallet app. And so if you wanted to go into a store and just hold your phone up, you could do that. And we had ways to do that before, right? Like you could you could download the blockchain onto your phone. But no, everyday people don't want to do nonsense like that. They just want to sign in with a four-digit PIN. And we all know in the crypto world that that's not a secure way to do it, but convenience is going to trump security every time. And so what you found was things like Mt. Gox, things like blockchain.io, things like... uh is it blockchain.io or blockchain.info? I got that website wrong last time and, and people get, yeah, blockchain.info. Yeah, info, blockchain.info. Uh, but the services like that are what made Bitcoin itself useful. And the thing that's interesting to me about Dash is from the ground up, they're planning on how to solve some of these problems. They're, they're planning on public perception matters. Having easy to use, friendly, great UI design mobile wallets matters. That stuff that stuff matters. And yeah, and XMN points out, yeah, absolutely. Uh, third-party wallets suck. It's it, it third-party wallets inherently destroy the or you know the the purpose of a decentralized currency because we if we all decentralize, if we all centralize around a third-party service, there's what's the point to having a decentralized currency to begin with? But um but 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 I think it, to a certain degree, if we're going to have market dominance, if you're going to be able to walk into McDonald's and Burger King, those companies don't want to hire a cryptocurrency expert to implement from the ground up an infrastructure. They want to have VeriSign or uh, not VeriSign, uh, <laughs> uh, not SSL certs. We're talking about credit cards, Noah. Uh, I, I forget the name, but the the, uh, the little credit card machine, they, there's, there's a company that provides them. We install them all the time. I can't think of the name, but 
they just want that company to add the ability to take the the internet currency. They just want to add it on there. That's that's all they want to do. They just want to pay their money and have a service. And so that that is a necessary part of living in today's society. So uh, you know the the the, uh, the darknets the the newer versions of the Silk Road, as it were, uh, they still exist. Like you know, they, and they 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 put Ross Albert in jail because that was going to solve things. It solved nothing. Um, and so what has sprung up from a lot of what we saw with Ross Albrecht is these new privacy conscious cryptocurrencies. Again, phone lines are open 1-855-450-6624, noah or live at asknoahshow.com. Another currency that I'm seeing uh, a lot lately is uh, Crowdcoin. Uh, and Crowdcoin, again, same story as uh, Verge. Very profitable to mine, very easy to mine, very easy to get into. I don't see a lot of places accepting it if you want to actually spend it anywhere. So for a day-to-day currency, it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. Uh, day-to-day currency, I would go with something like Dash or uh, or Monero would not be a bad not be a bad one. I tell you what, I'm really sad to say, but it's true. Is uh, it's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't going to help you anymore. Bitcoin's only useful for large transactions. And I hope that changes. I hope that uh, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months that I can come back and say, okay, Bitcoin has made these changes to the network or made these changes to the infrastructure. And now, and, and now, it, it's, now it's scalable again or now it's useful again. And wh- one thing that would help is if people would stop tying their cryptocurrencies to fiat currencies. Everyone cares. And, and I had this discussion probably four or five times in the last two weeks. I'd have a discussion with my friend. I'd say, you know, this is a really cool cryptocurrency you should look at. And he's like, yeah, well, that one doesn't have nearly, it's not worth nearly as many dollars as this other one here. And this other one is easier to mine. And I guess from the perspective of, I'm just trying to make money using cryptocurrency, I suppose that makes perfect sense. But for me, it's never been about that, never will be about that. For me, it's about enjoying the cryptocurrency, understanding the technology. And for me, the way to make that happen is to start disassociating with the Federal Reserve. It, the, the currency, cryptocurrency, has to stand on its own. And the way you do that is you stop caring what it's tied to the dollar. So Altaspeed Technologies will do a service call for, I, I don't remember exactly what it is, I think it's half a Bitcoin, uh, which is an outrageous federal dollar reserve amount to pay. But we set that years ago with the idea that we weren't going to just follow the Federal Reserve. So I and I made a promise to myself I didn't care if Bitcoin was worth one penny for a half you know, one penny, so I'd be getting a half a cent for an hour's worth of work, or it was worth ten million dollars. We were going to draw a stick our foot in the sand. And we may have reevaluate that someday because obviously it's it's a it, at this point it's just a it's just a game of principle, right? Like there's nobody paying us a half of Bitcoin to do one hour of service. It's just it's just not happening. Um but that's what we need to do collectively. We need to stop tying our Bitcoins, any cryptocurrency, to the Federal Reserve dollars. It's an important thing to keep track of. It's an important thing to have an idea about. But it's just it's just not something that you can do long term if you want the currency to exist on its own. Again, one eight five five four five zero Noah one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com or mumble dot dot org if you want to join the conversation. We got a couple ways for you to be a part of the program tonight. So. 2018 is going to be an interesting year. I actually was going through and and looking back at what existed 20 years ago, 25 years ago, technology that existed. And uh, I was researching it and kind of taking a step back and saying, how did we get here and where do we go from here? And that was an interesting thought experiment because what you have seen is back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, you had this transition from centralized computing systems to personal computers, computing systems. Everyone didn't want to store their data on a server. They wanted it stored locally because it was faster and more accessible and there wasn't a single point of failure, blah, blah, blah. We didn't have, we went away from the whole dummy terminal thing. We went to, you know, my actual computer, that kind of thing. And then somewhere in just the last four or five years, that culture has started to shift. And again, we no longer we're stop, stop we stopped caring about user autonomy and security and basically we just said well the internet is so prolific the internet is so everywhere that we have to have access to our data we can do that just by storing it up in the, the cloud and so we've seen a move back to the cloud 
and now what I'm seeing, and it's it's a very encouraging trend, and this is probably just in the last, I'd say, four to six months, maybe seven, eight months, somewhere in there. It was a weird leg from the Snowden reports and stuff like that. But just in the last couple of months, I have seen an explosion of people hiring us to put in file servers and home servers and media servers. And in a day where Hulu and Netflix and YouTube and YouTube Red and and Amazon Prime Video and whatever the newest one is that I don't even know anymore, that you would think that people would be moving more towards cloud-based services, more towards cloud-based media, more towards cloud-based picture storage and video storage and all that. I mean, my gosh, uh, Google, if you sign up for a G Suite account for $10 a month, will give you unlimited storage space. Unlimited storage space. You can store 27 terabytes of video footage if you want to on Google Drive for $10 a month. True story. And yet, despite all of that, every time I turn around, there's somebody asking me to set up a server for them. And so as I sat there kind of thinking about what, what is going to be the big thing of 2018, it, 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 it really kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, file servers, home services, home servers, localized storage, localized computers – I think we are going to see the largest research of privately owned infrastructure that we've seen in the last, I'd say, probably 10 years, I think is coming in 2018. And so I want to be a part of that. And uh, the Ask Noah Show wants to be a part of that and support you in doing that, because that's how we believe you should experience technology, technology that you own, technology that you manage, technology that you trust, technology that you chose to use. Technology should be consensual. Um, and so how do we do that? And so I, I think over the next couple of weeks, one of the things that we're going to start to do is move towards, uh, discussing the, the best kinds of home servers to set up, how to set them up, what, what kind of home servers you might want to set up is it just a file server. Is it a media server? Is it, um, is it a cluster of servers? I actually came across a really cool project I want to talk about that is a it's a it's a home networking server. So it basically runs like network services. You install it and it does DHCP and DNS and uh there's um there's a project called the Pi Hole which is basically a DNS server that is a it's a project you set it up on a Raspberry Pi and uh, you point your you set up your router to point to it for DNS requests and it will automatically remove ads from every site so you don't have to have ad blockers on every different web browser which increases the performance of the web browser increases your it increases the pleasure of the experience you have online all of these things i think are going to make are going to be a huge part of 2018 uh, Blue Zero in the chat room says he's got a question is keypass x better than lastpass yes absolutely for all of the reasons I just got done talking about, LastPass, uh, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, is a service-based password manager. The problem with LastPass is one, they got bought out by a really crappy company that likes to screw over users, uh, and then two, they followed up on their incredible reputation of screwing over users in just a couple of months. I uh, went to log into my LastPass and there is a notice and it says you have two-factor identification set up. If you want to use two-factor identification, you have to pay us this ransom. Here's the ransom fee. I don't remember what it was, $10 or something like that. If you don't pay us the ransom, then you can't use two-factor authentication. So I'm like, okay, well, I won't use two-factor authentication. Oh, but wait, you first have to pay the ransom, sign in with two-factor authentication, then you can disable two-factor authentication. So they just held my passwords ransom. Now, good thing for uh, myself is I don't ever trust any company or service, so LastPass was not the only place I had those passwords. I had them saved in a separate location, and so I just said, screw you, LastPass. There was like one or two of them I think I had to reset, but for the most part, I just didn't care. And uh, the, the newest, the newest um, password manager that I'm a huge fan of is the multi-tool, uh, M-U-U-L, let's see here, M-U-U-L-T-I-T-O-O-L. I think it is. Uh, yeah. M U, uh, uh, maybe that's not, uh, uh, password manager. Maybe that's not how you spell it. Um, maybe it's, maybe it is you, uh, you can go back and find, there's a, um, we covered it in a, in a past episode. Uh, do, 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 do. I can't find it now. But this is this is uh, it's it's a hardware based password manager, and what's really nice about it is 
Oh, multi-pass. M-O-O-L-T-I-P-A-S-S. And uh, what's nice about it is you don't ever have to visit a service, uh, as evidenced by the fact that I don't even know how to spell their company name. It's just a box, a little USB box that you plug in. You dial the password that you want, and it enters it as a keystroke. So you can use it on any computer at any time. It's completely safe to use in a public kiosk. Um, the passwords are stored locally and encrypted with a smart card, so you can just remove the smart card. You can also duplicate the smart card, so you can leave one private key in like a safety deposit box and carry the other one with you. That way, if you ever lose it, you don't lose access to your passwords. Absolutely phenomenal device. And and the nice thing is, too, is because there's going to be somebody out there that's like, well, I really like the convenience of LastPass where I just go to the website and it fills everything in. Not a problem, boss. Got you covered. MultiPass has a browser extension plugin, so you can put the extension in there and the extension will automatically fill in the passwords referenced off of the MultiPass once the MultiPass is unlocked absolutely fantastic password manager uh and so i use a combination of that and uh key pass uh, key pass x2 which is a which is basically just a software uh key pass manager key, password manager that i use c file then to sync across different devices um and all of those things i think speak volumes to what i was just talking about that local services local devices technology that you own technology that you trust is is going to be the future. And uh and I think we see that playing out over and over and over again and a lot of people got bit from MultiPass or from uh, key, uh LastPass. And uh when they did, a lot of people like me said I'm not going to be held hostage to my own accounts. So um good luck with that LastPass. I uh, wish you all the best of luck, but I would not use any any third-party service like that 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 uh claims to have your best interest at heart. I think it's a terrible idea and when it bites you in the butt, then I say <clears throat> you got what you deserved. So if you haven't heard, we are doing something that we're calling the Linux Elimination Challenge. And basically what the Linux Elimination Challenge is, is we have we are we asked you guys for a couple of weeks to submit all of the best distros for desktop, all of the best distros for server, all of the best distros for a utility distro, like unlocking a password or breaking into a Windows box or, uh, you know, um, recovering data. And we compiled all of those into one gigantic master list. And now what we're doing is we've taken like the desktop category, for example, and we split it up and said, here are all the the, the quote unquote best desktops distros for a, a desktop use case. And we're pitting one against the other and having you guys vote on it every week. Now, you can vote on the latest picks at asknoahshow.com slash elimination. Now, once we determine what the community has decided is the best distro for desktop use, we have we are then because we didn't just ask you, you know, which one do you think is best? We have asked you to submit why you think Arch is the best Linux desktop on the face of the planet. And we have compiled those into pros and cons. So a lot of people said Arch is amazing because it has a large software repository. A lot of people said I choose Ubuntu because a lot of the stuff in Arch tends to be broken and you have to work around it. So we can find a pro for Ubuntu, a pro for Arch, a con for Ubuntu, and a con for Arch. And somebody that's sitting down for the first time and saying, I want to get into Linux, but I don't know which distro to use. We can then point them to a site and say, here, here is the distro that everyone uses. So it's distro XYZ. That's the one that the vast majority of our community has decided is the best uh, distro for desktop use. Now, here is why they chose that one and because it has these things. And here's why the people that don't like it didn't choose that one. And here's those things. And then here's the second best one and the third best one. And the one that you thought might be a really great choice, it's 56 on the list. And here's the reasons why. And then you can you can make your own decision. We're not telling you what to do. You can look at it and say, yeah, it's 56 on the list, but it meets these three things that are really important to me. And all those other cons, I could care less about those. So number 56, it is for you. So last week, you, we voted on which is the best distribution for desktop use of the two, Peppermint OS or Void Linux. Out of 53 total votes, 47.17% uh, said Void Linux, and by a slim margin of just three votes, Peppermint OS wins with 52.83%. This week, uh, we're going to do two more slightly more popular distros. We've kind of weeded out some of the, the, the less known or less used distros. This week, we are voting on Solus and Manjaro. Now, Solus, if you're not familiar with Solus, it is a extremely polished, very well done 
uh, Linux distro that is designed for home computing. Uh, every tweak enables them to deliver a cohesive desktop experience. It, it, I would describe it as the Mac OS or Chrome OS of the Linux world. It's a highly, highly refined, highly, highly uh, polished uh, Linux distribution. I would argue, and I've gotten a lot of flack for this, but no one, everyone knows my standpoint on this at this point anyway. I would argue that it, it is lacking some features, but if you don't need those features or they're not important to you, and they are adding new features all the time, Solus is a really great choice. So, uh, and I, and I, I am friends with the, um, uh, I am friends with the uh, developer as well. Why is this not loading? Uh, friends with the developer as well. So if you're interested, he's a very nice guy and extremely dedicated to the project. In fact, he's doing it full time now. Uh, the competition to Solus is Manjaro. Manjaro is evolving and giving of uh, the Linux world a new face and a new operating experience. It's a rolling release distro loosely based on Arch. Um, I believe that uh, that is uh, free to use, free to distribute. And uh, extremely reliable. Um, it's a very user-friendly implementation of Arch. Uh, it's developed in Austria, France, Germany, and provides all of the benefits of the Arch operating system combined with the focus of user-friendliness and accessibility. So it's kind of a hybrid between, you know, you could think of it as kind of like a hybrid between the Arch world and something like the uh, like your your Ubuntu. And I see in the chat room uh, openly developed. Something it got cut off says Solus over Manjaro all day long. Uh, and so <clears throat> if you disagree with him, then you should head over to AstroShow.com slash elimination when this episode is posted and let us know which of those two distros you would use on your desktop for a daily driver. Again, it's an elimination bracket, so it doesn't have to necessarily be the one that you're installing. It's just of those two, which one would you choose? AstroShow.com slash elimination. You get a couple of minutes if you want to be a part of the program, one 855 450 the email live at You can also join us today only in the Mumble room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Mumble is a free open source voice chat client that you can use to discuss things like Linux or Linux questions. I had an interesting question come in from a listener, uh, and basically what he said was, how long are we supposed to punish companies for. So I'll give you an example. Dell back in the day was pretty terrible towards Linux users. And uh, this user actually points out, he said, you know, they, they went out of their way to find excuses of why they, they wouldn't have to honor hardware warranties and why they shouldn't provide support and why they should barely even answer the phone if they found out you were using Linux because they didn't ship Linux. And he said, you know, I decided a couple of years ago, I'm just done with Dell. Dell has hosed me over for the last time, and so I just refuse to participate with Dell. If Dell is going to treat me that way, I want nothing to do with Dell. And uh, and so what he did was he said he he and everyone that would listen to him said he just convinced him not to use Dell. And what we've seen now in the last couple of years is that Dell has done more than a 180. They have catapulted the the desktop Linux platform many, many, many years ahead of where it would be had it not been for Dell. You know, like Lenovo, I'm a big fan of ThinkPads. A lot of people know that. Uh, and Linux runs great on them. And if you want a computer that's going to run Linux right out of the box, the ThinkPad is a great choice. However, however, it doesn't come pre-installed with Linux. When I say it runs out of the box, I mean, you don't have to do any tweaking. It will just You can install it and use it. But Lenovo as a company still, even though Red Hat buys all of their computers, or at least the vast majority of them from Lenovo, still doesn't actually ship a uh, a machine that runs Linux out of the box. And Dell does. And not only does Dell do that, Dell is intimately involved at the deepest levels with the community and the developers that want a high-performing, very well-polished Linux system. And so... Uh, how long as a user, as a devoted Linux user, as a Linux guy, how long do you say, I'm going to refuse to buy Dell? Before you say, everyone changes, leadership changes, companies change, people change. And today, 2018, January 2nd, Dell is one of the most friendly companies to Linux, and Linux would not be where it is today without 
companies like Dell. How long do you keep that grudge? I don't know. I don't have the, I didn't have the answer for him. So I'm throwing it to you guys, the community and let me know, uh, either in the telegram group, telegram.asknowashow.com. You can send an email to live at asknowashow.com. I'd love to know or call in and let's have a discussion about it. But I, you see, I, I kind of missed that boat because 2009 is, is when I founded AltaSpeed Technologies. And prior to that, we had bought a couple servers from uh, Dell and they had worked out really, really well. And actually, really, it started, and I've told the story before, but it started back when I was in high school and I had an HP that the processor was an AMD processor and it overheated all the time. And so I couldn't play Counter-Strike on it. I was really frustrated. And uh, I bought the lowest, the cheapest computer that I could find because I didn't have any money was a Dell Inspiron, Dell Inspiron 1100. And I bought it for $365 brand new and Dell shipped it to me. And I, I, I can still remember, it still works. I still have it. Uh, and I still remember when I got that the computer and showed up and uh, I wanted the Pentium processor. I couldn't afford it. So I bought the Celeron processor and uh, I went to play a video and the video was st- uh, uh, skipping. And I was like, I should have sprung for the Pentium. And then I realized that GNOME had introduced some stupid power saving feature. And I just had to turn that off. And all of a sudden the video played perfectly smooth. And then I was like, man, this thing works great. And uh, I had a couple problems with it over the years because I broke it, you know, had damage to it, whatever. And every time that would happen and I would contact Dell, they would uh, repair or replace it for me. I even ended up extending the warranty, which I usually don't do. And Dell treated me so well with that computer that when I got hired uh, with the with the medical software company that I worked for, I convinced them to buy me their top end Latitude, uh, which was the computer I had right up until uh, I started. Ulti- Actually, I used it for a couple of years after I started Ultra Speed Technologies. And right away, around 2009, I mean, we we formed the company. We formed the 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 paperwork on December 9th of 2009, and I think by December. 15th or 20th we were a dell partner and we've been a dell partner ever since we've been selling dell hardware and uh, we've been putting linux on dell hardware and dell is very much aware of that and dell has supported us every step of the way and uh i am a huge fan of dell and so i i kind of missed over that uh the you know dell you know not trading the community well but um they have always done right by me so i say it's time to forgive dell charlie joins us in the mumble room hey charlie we got a couple minutes left how are you not too bad. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah. How how are things going in Australia? Uh, really hot. <laughs> really? So it is, I think we have, it's like negative 70 with the windshield in parts of Minnesota right now. Uh, it feels like 40 degrees Celsius here. Yeah. When I say, yeah, it's, I guess it's, yeah, Fahrenheit, negative 70 uh, Fahrenheit. So uh, so what's new? I, I, I You were the guy that uh, you had a number of different challenges when you were trying to get your uh, your Linux computer. Are you back on Linux or are you still on Windows? Uh, still on Windows at the moment. Just got a thing to comment on what you were talking about before with Solaris yeah. and the other distribution. I've tried both of those. Um, Solaris refuses to work with the AMD R9 3 Series drivers. Um, and the other one, based off Arch, um, doesn't work with AMD GPU Pro. It only works on the old Catalyst driver. So that's going to be a problem for anyone wanting to use those two distributions with a AMD uh, R9 3 any card, like a 380. Okay, now if you had it to do over again, would you do AMD again or would you go with Intel? I think AMD is the better choice because of the fact that it supports FreeSync and Vulkan and OpenGL better. And G-Sync, which is getting pushed by NVIDIA, is actually like 200 to 300 bucks more for a monitor yeah, and Nvidia has been shown before to be any consumer in OpenGL and locking out virtualization for their cards. Right, right, yeah, the, yeah. We talked about that with Wendell Wilson too. How they how they've done that. How about Ryzen? Do you see much of a future in Ryzen? Is that something you'd consider if you were again starting over, doing it over again? Um, I'm using a Intel Haswell Xeon at the moment, and it's going really well. But I have actually built three systems for people with Ryzen 5 1600, and it's going really well. Fantastic. I'm sorry that music uh, means that we're out of time. We're hand you off to Harm Reduction with Will Beaton coming up next on the all-new Independent Talk, KEQQ 88.3 FM. <laughs> 